Welcome to Lean Agile Management Podcast, a show by Kanbanize that helps you boost work efficiency, create a culture of high performance, and build teams that thrive. Welcome to the LAMP. Hello, everyone. My name is Dimitar. I'm from Kanbanize. And today I'm joined by Keith Howells and Angeline Thorne from Project 4 Learning Lab. Hey, guys. How are you today? Awesome. Yeah. Really to it. I'm very happy to have you on the, our podcast, uh, Project for Learning and Kanbanize. We've been partners for a while now. We've had we've had some great successes. We've done some amazing things together, and I'm happy that we can share this knowledge with the world today. Uh, but before we start, could you let us know how did you come up with your name? What does Project for Learning Lab mean? Oh, now you're asking. What a question. Um, <laughs> you so, that one. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So, so we spun off the company from a, a sister company um, called Project 7 Consultancy. And their specialism has been in the application of lean in the context of operational excellence. So factories and things like that. And we obviously knew that all the principles apply in transactional and knowledge work and we wanted to take that learning and apply it in a new context building on our experience so we needed a project number and four happened to be available and <laughs> we the idea of project for learning and setting ourselves up as a learning lab because life's about learning so project for learning lab was born uh, great start you mentioned manufacturing and lean, and one of the biggest topics, uh, even when Toyota started with it, was the pull principle. A lot of the modern manufacturing is based on producing just in time what the clients want, right? And coming from my own experience with Kanbanize, this hasn't been so mainstream in the knowledge work domain, I should say. So could you please share, do you teach those things with your clients in the knowledge work domain? And if you do, how do you do it? Please help me uh, in those conversations when we have it with, with customers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's, uh, I think it's pretty counterintuitive, actually, to a lot of people in knowledge management, because you kind of brought up on the mantra, you know, the sooner I start something, the sooner I'm going to finish it. That's kind of, you know, like a, and if I'm a project manager, if I know that someone started on my project, then it's probably going to get finished sooner, right? That's the kind of the, the tapes that we've got going on in our head a lot. So it can be quite hard, like you say, in knowledge management, I think, to kind of break people away from that kind of, that, that belief, that belief system. So so I think, you know, we do a mixture of things. So simulations can be a great way, actually, to, to try and dispel, dispel some of those preconceptions in terms of whether it's good or bad. If you just keep pushing stuff in, um, what does that do? And you can do things with um, capturing lead times. There's really simple things as well. We do sometimes that kind of like whip exercise where you, you get people writing numbers one through 26 and A through Z and, and then doing them alternately. And, and then having a conversation with people about how did that feel? And you get the kind of, well, it's pretty stressful trying to think about two things at the same time. And when you start kind of, exploring that a little bit with people and then sharing some of the data that exists around context switching and how if you just keep shoving stuff in 
um, rather than perhaps being a bit more disciplined around that and kind of only picking stuff up when you finish something. I think it starts to create that kind of insight that then people are more, more, more open to that. So I think there's different ways to do it. And the virtual environment has made that a little bit more challenging in some instances. But um, mm. yeah, I think you've got to help people to kind of see a different way because uh, it's pretty hard coded in us that yeah, get started and then we'll be finished sooner. <laughs> Don't know what you think, Keith. Yeah, I think there's a link to productivity as well um, beyond the, the context switching. So like you say, when when we're running multiple things concurrently and we're switching between them, it's a very inefficient way, but it's also a very stressful way. And when we talk with clients, particularly those engaged in knowledge work, the, the, whereas in operations and manufacturing, we might talk about safety in the context of accidents, mm-hmm clear knowledge work it's about mental health and challenges and and that's almost always associated with overwork and pressure and unsustainable working practices which comes from largely from the push mentality so yeah i I liked what you said keith uh, because with covid uh, psychological and emotional safety for people has been (laughs) A big topic recently and uh, a lot of people started seeing psychologists and whatnot and i think what we do with you guys and with the kanban method uh, all together is we actually help people work in a more humane way if you will and um, deal with overburdening not just from the work itself but emotionally and psychologically so i really like what you said and Angeline, back to what you mentioned, you, you, meant, you mentioned simulations. What kind of simulations do you use? Is it, is it board games? I've seen a lot of those, or is it digital? How do you do it? There's different ones. I think you can look at digital simulations in the physical world in some of the academies that we run. There's um, sort of simulations, physical simulations that the teams do, and they kind of role play, you know, just free fall, push system and then a, um, a, a pull system. I think Keith, you've done some work actually in the Cambonize, um instance doing some simulations yeah. of that. So um, yeah, a, a mixture of both. Yeah, moving away, um, we find physical simulations help, you know, physical simulations help people feel and experience things mm-hmm. and builds a sense of engagement with the activity that is really helpful for them as they reflect on what they've learned and what it means in practice. The the COVID situation drove us to look for alternative ways. And, and with one of our clients, we actually used Kanbanize to run remote simulations, but still had some kinesthetic activity. So we essentially set up a, a process that had a defined output and a requirement and a set of inputs and transformations that were taking place at each process step. And then we simply contrasted what it what happens when everyone's just in a race to do as much as they can and stuff's being pushed in. And then what happens when we move to more of a pull system in conjunction with the control of work in progress. And that really helps people understand how it feels different, what's underneath it, and some of the results that we can expect from doing that. And uh, that feels very powerful generally for people. Yeah. I think the advantage of that digital one that you did, Keith, as well, was when we talk about knowledge management, 
it's sort of in some way it's a little bit more applicable to the knowledge management space sometimes the physical ones are quite rooted in your making a product or you're physically doing a product so people can go away with a yeah but that doesn't apply to me right because I'm not I'm not physically making something you know I'm, I'm writing a report or I'm doing some analysis so so I think we, we would want to explore a bit more some of those digital simulations to help people in that knowledge management space yeah. really get how it applies to them. <clears throat> All right, guys, thanks for that. Uh, really interesting stuff. I think what you alluded to a little bit earlier was systems thinking and local versus global optimizations and how pushing work into the system keeps everybody busy but not necessarily leads to any productivity. And um, I'm curious as to what you're seeing when you typically go into a client, do you see them operating more out of push? Which means these people, they have eight hours a day. I need to plan every hour for them. I need to tell them what to do and not waste any productivity by people sitting there idle or do you rather see your clients before you start working with them focused on the whole, focused on the big picture, making progress on their projects and programs and portfolios, whatever, and not necessarily digging into the details of how much every individual is working? What do you typically see and what has worked historically for our clients, the one or the other? I, I think that's... Um... There's an interesting paradox that's going on, and there's a translational issue, I think, in that when we when we initially talk with clients, they talk about their current performance and how they need to improve, and they're talking about productivity generally. And then when we start working with clients, often what they're ending up looking at is efficiency and, and how well they're using the resources that they've got around them. And that drives them to maximize utilization, which we know results in work waiting. And often with the clients that we work with, the cost of waiting and the cost of delay is significantly bigger than the cost of the resource or the people available to them to do the work. And so they sort of confuse productivity with efficiency often and aim to maximize efficiency at the expense of productivity and throughput. Um, and so that translational error compounds itself when, because our clients then often use push systems to, to maximize utilization. As I say, I think it's harder in, um in knowledge management as well for people to observe that that's such an issue and I think it, it's more well understood in manufacturing and people talk about things like standard hours as a measure and if you just chase standard hours you you, you know you, it doesn't necessarily translate to throughput and you might see that visibly by whip building up in certain places in your factory whereas in knowledge management you don't really see that kind of that whip building up so I think it's sort of like a, a hidden um inefficiency and waste that people don't realize and they think that by measuring utilization or looking through that lens that their world is going to get better but they're not seeing the hidden costs of that which is the overburden the <laughs> the, the stress the 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 um the lack of productivity because stuff isn't flowing through your your, your processes for for that knowledge work so i think it yeah generally you know when we 
going to clients it's probably more like that than the um aligned piece but i think it's harder and it's not um it's not as visible so hopefully we can help people to make that a bit more visible yeah angelina i'm very happy you mentioned uh, utilization because actually donald Reynoldson talks about utilization a lot and mm -hmm. he says that after a certain point if you go above that point in utilization, like if, if you operate on 90% utilization, on 100% utilization, you are inherently much slower to respond to the needs of the market just because you have no slack in the system. And it's counterintuitive. A lot of managers will hate to see somebody idle uh, just because they're losing productivity as, as Keith said. But actually, if you have some people that are idle or on the bench, as some say, maybe doing a, a training that uh, maybe doing a self reading or something like that, ready to, to jump into a project, but not working on a project right now. This actually enables agility within the teams, within the companies. So utilization 100% is actually bad. It's, it's not the opposite as people usually think. So I'm very happy you touched that point. And actually when talking about utilization and planning people by the hour, I myself often compare that to Taylorism. You know, uh, the industrial revolution, people doing small jobs for a certain amount of time without necessarily thinking about it, uh, much like robots. I don't think this works in knowledge work not at all. I think it's dangerous, but I'm, I'm curious as to whether you share my views on the Taylorism parallel. What do you guys think? Do you agree or not? I, I think it's a really interesting parallel. And uh, I, I think probably in our past, we might have been accused of doing something similar <laughs> with people. <laughs> think what you're referring to there, Keith. <laughs> um, uh, but, I, but I think it's right as well in that I think if we if we think about the differences with that time where that that theory and approach span from repetitive work very clear when the work was complete and that sort of led to more scientific thinking around what is the work content of this product and how can we take time out and how can we maximize um utilization knowledge work and and particularly in the world we're in now is totally different isn't it when is a when is that work done when someone decides it's finished fundamentally mm -hmm. and we can say well it's when it's good enough but it's never perfect so it could always be better so the good enough question comes to what's it for what's the purpose what are the requirements and how can we define when the work's been complete and if we start from that point then it makes no sense to manage people's time to, to this degree. I would say the counter to that is because we're all human, we, we all are used to working in to a rhythm and to a cadence and to a calendar and to some form of clock. So I think the challenge becomes how do we bound time and manage work within some bounded time without going so narrow and so tight that people are constrained. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. I think you know, some structure can be helpful, but it's a bit of a, a sort of a fallacy, I think. People feel they've got some sense of control 
if the, you know we, we've got that kind of hour by hour tracking but but it's not really controlled because there's so much sort of uncertainty and yeah. complexity um, ambiguity in some of the kind of the knowledge management work that people might be doing it's it's a passing fleeting thing that you can create a plan that you think is half reasonable and it probably isn't so um, so yeah I'd, I'd agree I hadn't thought of it comparing it back to Taylorism before but it's uh, yeah yeah so I'm, I'm sure somebody will listen to our conversation and will say yeah right uh, you agile guys, you always bash on estimating and planning people's time by the hour. But that's all we've got. Do we have something better than this? And some people might be willing to learn and might be willing to take their organizations from a push to pull. But how, how would you recommend they start? At what level in the organization should it be a top-down approach? Should it be a bottom-up approach? Should we start in the middle with middle management? What what have you seen in your experience to work better? Yeah, I mean, it, on, in a big organization, it's pretty hard to, at the team level, to make that shift if there's not alignment above. And I sort of worked in a role where I was looking at a portfolio level and you could, back to our overburden and stressed position earlier on, you had people sort of, you know, were trying to do the work and just, you know, everyone above them was telling them this was the most important, that was the most important, you've got to pick that up now. And it, and it just desperately needed some um, intervention to make sure there was some discipline around that pull, not just, you know, just start everything at, at once. So, so I think that that's quite an important condition, I guess. I've been in environments where we've sort of been in a bit of a bubble and we've maybe had a bit of latitude that's given us some air cover. So we are sort of a middle part of the organisation have managed to make a bit of a shift in that direction. But I think, yeah, in, in a big organisation, it's really challenging if, you know, you've got commitments are being made at the top of the organisation that, yeah, we will start that thing. It's really hard for a team to turn around and say, yeah, um, you know, I, that, that's not right. I'm only going to pull my work in. So I think, yeah, it's, um, but that can be, that that shouldn't stop us from trying to do experiments at a, a working level, but I think it will come to a point where um, it gets stifled without that alignment. I, th I think that's exactly right. I think there's a, the, we get the benefit from the top level and people are a product of their environment. And if, if work is being pushed from the top into teams then it's always going to be a challenge it's hard to change at that level though without starting with where the work's actually done so i think there's sort of benefit in starting small where teams are and helping teams focus on the things they control because i think that then creates a better quality of discussion at the interface when work comes in can this team pick it up or can they not based on everything else they've got around them? Mm -hmm. And and our experience is that that sort of quick feedback, quick learning and that, that feeling of making progress and moving towards a better state can become quite infectious in organisations and, and it then provides a reason for others to change. And so we sort of have to manage both, but recognise that when we do it in small teams, we, we're prone to that sub-optimization. The teams feel better, they feel more in control. 
but the organization still not going to get the results it wants until we manage at that system level so it's a real complicated web and I've, I've seen it um have a really powerful impact i mean it sort of and think of examples where it sort of sent shockwaves really where a decision is taken at that sort of senior level to effectively not pull another piece of work or not push another piece of work into the system because we're, we're sort of full and then it was like really you know it was like it was such a kind of a, an, an unusual thing to do but but I think it was helpful and um, hopefully the sort of continuing on on that path but uh, but yeah it's uh, I think both as Keith says which sounds a bit of a cop-out but uh, <laughs> I think uh, you don't necessarily realize the benefits that the team might feel unless you've got some kind of alignment um, with the senior level. Yeah, I would always recommend to start as high in the hierarchy as you possibly can. Mm. Of course, if we talk about uh, huge corporations, that's just not possible or very rarely mm. possible, I should say. Uh, but whoever in the senior executives we could attract as a sponsor or um, as a champion, that's definitely a, a great prerequisite for further success yeah. onwards i definitely agree and uh, you guys mentioned pushing work from the top down people going crazy being overburdened i think that's the reality for a lot of companies out there and this results in all sorts of dysfunctions people hiding work or people finishing work when it's not actually finished delivering defective products and what not. I mean, all sorts of things. What have you seen in, in your experience in terms of dysfunctions that have been caused by the push behavior of the senior management in, in certain companies? Yeah, I don't know if you wanna take this key yeah. so I can. You've mentioned a few of them, Dimitar. I, I think there's a there's a really important one and it's it's, and you touched on it, and it's it's really subtle but massively powerful, and that's the the speed of feedback. So that there becomes when we have high levels of work around us and we're pushing stuff, when it leaves our team and goes to another one, if that product is defective or good, by the point in time at which we learn about that. Well, we might never learn about that because mm -hmm. the point in time at which some team discovers it downstream, we've moved on and we're doing different things. And the one thing that we hear from clients more often than not is if we want to go faster, then the quality is going to decrease. <laughs> That's their mental model. Speed means poorer quality. And we always say, no, 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 no. Speed means much better quality because you reduce the, the feedback loops and, and the time to feedback. So the quicker we can get feedback on whether our work is good or bad, the easier it is to adapt and change what we're doing today to make it better. And obviously the less exposed we are to changes in the external environment, be they inside the organization or outside. And so I, I think we see quite a lot of this fallacy of, I'm gonna take longer, um, and I'm going to do a really good job of inspecting in quality into this. And if you guys have to wait a bit longer because we're inspecting to make sure it's right, then that's good for everyone. <laughs> and we try and flip that stuff around and say, come on, 
we all know that when we get faster feedback, quality improves and we reduce the work. So. Yeah, you, you remind me of something uh, which my mentor, um, in, in the beginning of my lean journey 10 years ago, 12, 12 years ago, I should say, my mentor told me a story about the German car manufacturers versus the Japanese car manufacturers. And he quoted Mercedes. He's German, by the way. He said, Mercedes, they were proud that they were investing, let's say, 200 hours after the car is out of the manufacturing line to eliminate defects. And that's why the German cars were so high quality. Versus the Japanese, they spend zero hours to fix issues after the car is out of the production line uh, because they built the quality in. It's one of their ideas, one of their principles to build quality in exactly what you're saying. And um, it's also what my mentor told me, if you, if you have too many defects, it means you're pushing too hard. You need to slow down to go faster. And you know, not just slowing down for the sake of slowing down, but slowing down to exactly fix the feedback issues that you mentioned to fix the underlying causes of these defects coming up. So I completely agree with you. My experience with Kanbanize, by the way, has been exactly like this. And uh, for example, we don't wait for customer issues to pile up to start fixing them. You know, we, we have, of course, we try to eliminate all issues before they actually reach the customer, but it's not always possible. But so when a customer complains, hey, this is not working, we stop the line just as the car manufacturers do, at least Toyota does. We fix the issue and then we resume the line uh, because that's how um, it's much less expensive. The cost of fixing a defect, wh whether that's software or manufacturing, it doesn't matter, increases with the time that passes between the actual origination and the time you, you start working on it. So the sooner you fix it, the cheaper it is, right? I think that's right. I think the other thing, particularly in knowledge work that we've seen is we, we see lots of organizations creating reviews where experienced people come together and review the quality of the work produced by the team. And we see rather fewer organizations have those experienced people coach the people doing the job to go in a useful direction before they start. So organizations typically think they're building in quality by inspecting. And whereas if they were investing in coaching and sharing knowledge and experience before work started, that would probably be a cheaper, better investment for them. And um, I remember, Angeline, we had a number of discussions in previous roles on a particular project where one department was absolutely convinced that the quality of their work would increase and the whole program would go faster if they could have more time to do their peer reviews. And, and our view was, it's definitely going to take longer. It's definitely going to cost more. And the quality may improve. Yeah. <laughs> not a great outcome for us. So. Yeah. I really like what you said. Yeah, please go ahead, Angeline. Yeah. I was just going to say on the dysfunctions thing, I, I, I'm reminded of Lencioni and his five dysfunctions of a team. And there's quite a few of those that we've seen. And I'm struck by the um, 
you know, we talk about sort of accountability and commitment that I think sometimes I've, I've observed, or I guess we've observed as stuff gets pushed in, there's a, well, you know, you'll get what you get. And, and there's sort of, we talk about this learned helplessness that can sometimes come across that it's like, well, I don't feel like I've got any control over the work that we're being asked to do. Someone's made up a date, someone's committed something on our behalf, you know, and it, so you, you, you don't get those great benefits of, of that sort of commitment and accountability that you might get if, if people feel better able to control their, their own work. And ultimately that from a trust point of view, you know, that that's really damaging in terms of the, the relationships in the organization. So I think there's a fair spattering of those dysfunctions that when uh, Sienny talks about that you kind of uh, see with people are just continuing to push, push, push work in and not really think about principles of flow and, and how we, we better control that, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, great point, Angelina, I really loved it. If the teams are not owning, if they're not committed to what they're supposed to work on, you will never ever see a high performance team um, to get stuff done quickly with high quality. I think it's yeah. a prerequisite. Otherwise, it's just taking ages and people are disengaged and quite often leave actually. It's, it's a whole plethora of, of issues out there uh, that are caused by something that people sometimes are not even realizing is happening. So great yeah. conversation. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you guys is how do we plan projects? How do we plan capacity if this traditional way of doing it is not that great? Or at least that's what we've been preaching today. So how do I actually do it? I have a project, it starts tomorrow. How the heck do I know when it's about to get done? How do you do it with your clients? Leave that yeah. with you, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's really challenging. I, I kind of, um, I, I remember being asked to lead a program and thinking, God, I don't know how the hell, um, I mean, commitments had already been made to customers. And so that was sort of a bit of a mute point, but trying to kind of do any kind of planning just felt such a, a, a massive challenge. I think, um, I think we do sometimes need to look at some guardrails that allow us to do some kind of rough approximation of, of shape and size. But I think it's dangerous when we take that to a, we're gonna micromanage and do lots of detail because it's just pointless. So I think it can be helpful to have some kind of um, outline structure that you can then is like a sort of a reference point that teams can plan against. As Keith alluded to earlier, we probably went a bit overkill in a previous life in terms of we had a bunch of engineers that we were asking to plan and probably hated us for it because of um, the, the focus we were putting in. But we, I guess we've shifted, we, we learned during that experience and we've shifted since in terms of getting people to think about work in terms of a range of factors. So not just the, you know, it's gonna take me this many minutes or hours, but like the complexity, the uncertainty, we work with clients on looking at, um, we talk about decision flows, but understanding learning that needs to be gained in order to be able to move us forward in a certain direction. And, um, and back to our context switching piece, if you're trying to work on all of those things at once, then that, that's not a good idea. So, so we kind of maybe have some loose um, sense of, of, of capacity planning, but I think then when at a task level, it becomes more important 
for the teams to understand what work they think they want to do in a period um, and to think about that managing their work in progress and, and not picking up everything at once and kind of trying to be more disciplined about that. We were working with a client in the last couple of weeks and I was sort of quite pleased. It's sort of the, the, we were reinforcing the mantra of, you know, start, um, stop starting stuff and start finishing stuff was we were talking about. And we were talking about when do you pick up your next piece of work? And they were saying, well, when I've done a piece of work and trying to get more into that discipline, that thinking way um, around how I'm going to plan my capacity and not being so fixated on I've got 32 hours a week that I'm going to, you know, plan all of my work in because it's a little bit you don't know that that piece of work is going to take you how many hours or not because you don't really know what that activity is that you're going to do so long answer but it's um yeah we, we we have to work with clients depending on their context to try and navigate through that you're on mute keith, you're on mute, keith yeah <laughs> the most frequently used phrase in <laughs> I, it was my gift to you I, it was an awesome statement i'm sure <laughs> there's a bit of background noise uh, i i think there's a lot in that actually in that um we see we see organizations that that try to act well do act responsibly but their their translation of that is we're, we're going to plan in line with past experience we're going to plan based on demonstrated capability to deliver programs of this size and shape uh, and yet every one of those programs was unique to its time and its context and within that was quite a lot of waste and quite a lot of whatever was going on and so rationally it feels like that's a very responsible thing but it's a left to right planning approach which may or may not be what the customer or the market or the world needs so we're very strong advocates of right to left planning what is it that we're trying to achieve and why and who for what do they want and then looking at, well, how will we achieve that? And it sort of breaks a little bit the paradigm from this is our process, this is our approach, this is what we do to be more value and customer focused. What is it that we need to do to create value? And then the point Angeline made about if we understand that, then we can look at what work is required in the short term to do that and what's a helpful direction of travel. And our goal really on programs is to retire risk and uncertainty quickly. So another way of putting that is to learn quickly. Mm -hmm. So we would typically say, what, what direction are we going? What is it that we don't know about that direction? What is it that we'd need to do to know those things? And let's plan that work right now. And we might lay that out into iteration sprints increments or time slices or that might be a sort of continuous uh, approach that we might take but the key thing is that we stop and reflect and look at opportunities to change the way we're working to go faster and to deliver better at frequent intervals so we're sort of trying to marry this big picture this is the direction of travel what is it we don't know with the flexibility and agility to do things, learn, reflect, adapt, change, on the premise that hopefully we will go faster each time we do that because we're addressing the fundamental process issues. Um, yeah, a lot of great stuff, guys. I really, um, I, I wanna summarize what I heard 
just so I make sure I got it all right, you said you want to focus on what the organization really wants to achieve and then work backwards with some high-level planning, as Angeline mentioned, some high-level milestones, not broken down into tiny, tiny details, but like three months or six months or a year, we want to achieve this. And then you work from that into smaller iterations or continuous flow with the teams actually doing the work with the goal and the focus to learn fast, whether this high level planning has any chance of actually turning out to be true. And the sooner you discover that the plan, the high level plan is good or, or, or inaccurate, the sooner you can actually adjust. Is that what you guys are saying? That's a great summary. <laughs> yes. And I really loved that because uh, Keith, you also mentioned risk. And um, I take pride in one quote from myself that uh, the best risk management strategy is flow optimization. I, I don't think there's a better risk strategy than actually delivering stuff in a predictable way and learning continuously. There's no point in putting up a spreadsheet with likelihood of risk occurring and impact of risk occurring. Yeah, it's all there. And then what you do about it? What, what yeah. do you do about it? <laughs> you optimize flow. So we don't even do these kind of things. I'm not saying it's useless, but I'm yet to see <laughs> you know, the applicability of project management, risk management by the book. All right, guys, we're approaching the end of, of the program today. Um, and I want to make sure that our listeners uh, can reach out to you and uh, maybe work with you, get a consultation. Uh, they, maybe they have a problem that you can help them with. So what's the best way for them to reach you? Oh, well, you can contact us um, via our website or via LinkedIn. So p4learninglab.com or project4learninglab on LinkedIn. Um, our contact details are on there. We're very happy to talk with people to share our experience. Um, so we're very happy with initial consultations or anything. Um, we've we've spent many years making mistakes. So our value proposition is that hopefully we can help people not follow the same path. So. Thank you, guys. I'm sure you can do a great job with uh, any potential client because I know what we've achieved already. Uh, you, you have some amazing clients, uh, big corporations. You're doing great progress with them. So I encourage everybody who's listening and doubting whether they should get in touch. Please do get in touch. Uh, Keith and Angeline are stellar consultants and they can help you out. All right, guys, thank you very much for today. It was really, really nice having you. I enjoyed the conversation and uh, I hope we'll speak again soon. Yeah, our pleasure. Really enjoyed it. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.